0: I want to invite you to turn uh, to Hebrews chapter 5. We're actually going to pick up in the last couple of verses uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and diving into chapter 5 today. And uh, I want to kind of set the tone for where we're going in this book, why we are in this book. Um, let me just put it this way, maybe more memorable this, this way. Uh, Jesus isn't who you think he is. Uh, he, he is who he says he is. And um, I think sometimes in our culture we get really confused with the identity of God because we sort of just make God what we want him to be. And then we live in light of what we want him to be, um, sort of forcing him into our box. And what we find out in, in that religious way of thinking is in, in any other fashion you do that other than allow God to be God, um, your, your God ends up bankrupting you. It's really just a form of idolatry to serve yourself. And, and what we want to do this summer is we just want to look at the simplicity of Jesus. Um, God created you to know him, enjoy him, and to delight in him in all of eternity. The joy for which you were created to discover in life is found in God because you're created for his purpose. And it's not until you understand the idea of who God truly is that you can begin to live for the reason for which you were created. And, And God made this walk in life pretty simplistic as it's communicated to us in scripture. Religion has a tendency to complicate it, and Jesus has a tendency to beat the snot out of religion and let us just enjoy him. And so anytime you're stressed out about what it means to walk with God, it's quite possibly because you've got a little too much religion and not enough of Jesus in your life. And so we're just looking at the book of Hebrews to discover what that means. And Hebrews starts off in a very powerhouse type way for us. It's written to the Jews, which is why the title for us today, when we read it in English, it's called the book of Hebrews. uh, But he starts the idea of prophet. In times past, God spoke to the prophets. Today, he speaks to us in Jesus, which would have woken the Jews up because the prophets have been silent for hundreds of years. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to identify Jesus in title and categorically for us to sort of put things in, in perspective. We like to ...to just sort of define things to help our minds at ease. If we're unfamiliar with things, sometimes we don't like the ambiguity of life. And so the book of Hebrews is really helping us understand the identity of Jesus. And he does it in several ways. He does it in the titles of the Old Testament. And he does it through systems of sacrifice that were represented in the Old Testament. The reason God created titles in the Old Testament for individuals... ...and the system of sacrifice was to create shadows... ...that would ultimately point us to everything culminating in Christ... And you'll see this in the beginning of Hebrews. You're going to see this through the rest of the book. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the prophet. He's God, he's king, and chapter 2, verse 17, it gives us the title of priest. It tells us he's better uh, than the angels, he's greater than Moses. It's going to go on from here, and it's going to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We've talked about Jesus being the Sabbath already. Jesus is the lamb. Jesus is the temple. All of these are shadows for us to see how everything created in the Old Testament culminates itself in Christ. In fact, if I were just to open up in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14, that's exactly what the author Wants want you to think of. He says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Our confession is rooted in everything that the identity of Jesus is. Jesus isn't who you believe he is. Jesus is who he says he is. And it's significant to our walk in living in life to see who he is in the light of how he has communicated himself. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, and talking about confession, this is our theme verse. It says this from the book Let us hold fast our confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. And, and, and the reason the author wants to bring us to this point, to seeing the faithfulness of Jesus, culminating of everything in Christ, is because life can shake you up. And the, the question you've got to answer when life gets rocky is where is your foundation? What do you put hope in? And if you think about the, the people that the book of Hebrews was written to, it's written to the Jews. They're about to face some of the hardest persecution they have ever endured in life. They faced persecution up to this point. The, the early church was birthed out of per- persecution with the stoning of Stephen. It spreads, the church spreads from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. They get to Rome and Nero starts persecuting the church. The emperor persecutes the church. And then the church begins to scatter again because of the persecution. And that persecution is extensive. In fact, first 250 years of Christianity, 125 of those years, it could cost you your life for following Jesus. And so when you're a Jew pursuing this Christ, there is tremendous cost that you're about to pay for your faith in Jesus. It's alienated you from your people and now Rome itself is about to persecute you. Now, in America, American context, we don't always grasp the full picture of the decision that individuals would make in this society, because the way of our American structure is built, we tend to think very individualistically. It's all about you and what you want. In other cultures throughout the world, the more predominant thought isn't so much about individuality, but community. And what you find in many cultures that are community-based, there's also religion attached to community of which people find their identity. And so we're not talking about, in the Hebrew context, them just walking away from a belief system and entering into a relationship with Jesus. We're, at, we're talking about people that are walking away from a religion that has built their, the system of life around them. It's where their identity is. And now they find themselves in their faith alienated from their people. This is a very complex place for them to be because their culture has found identity in this religion. And, and so to remove themselves from their people religiously is to alienate themselves from community. And in that, where is your foundation? I mean, Even religiously, if, if you, you look at religion and you look at Jesus and you choose to embrace relationship with Jesus... Over religion, there are still certain comforts that you grow up in that type of environment of community where they find identity, and it has you reeling. Where do you go? How can you draw near to God? In some cases, people learn to put their hope in a religious leader that they feel or they idolize in helping them approach God. How can they get close to them and then as far as the culture goes and turning to Jesus am I betraying my people what do you hope in Jesus even said in his own his own communication to his disciples that father will be against son and mother will be against daughter that to pursue him there is cost and to do that you need a foundation you need a hope you need to be able to draw near to God And this is where Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 starts. If you remember last week, we talked about rest, right? Sabbath. God created you Sunday. It's it's not just Sunday that's a special day. Everything that God created is sacred. And, And the Sabbath is only intended to point us to, or what God created as a Sabbath was only intended to point us to Jesus, who is the ultimate Sabbath, for you to rest in him. And so in light of that thought, he then starts Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, a priest in the Old Testament was one who represented you before God. And so he starts off with this idea that once you walk out of this religious system, you're left wondering, how can I draw near to God? Where can I put my hope? Who's going to help guide me, direct me? It says, here in this, Jesus is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession." Not only is Jesus priest, but this section of scripture refers to him as the great high priest. In Israel's day, they had the high priest position, but even beyond that, now Jesus is the great one. And so you think about in in Israel's day what the high priest was. uh, To be a priest, you had to come from the tribe of Levi. To hold the position of high priest, you had to even come from the family of Aaron out of the tribe of Levi. And, And the high priest position was really only held by one person until they died. And now it's saying in this passage that, beyond all that, Jesus is the great High priest." How so? I mean, if you were a Jew, you would need to know that, right? If I've got to put my confidence here, how, how do I know that Jesus becomes that position for me and what I need in life? And I think when you think about the book of Hebrews, it, it's begun to, to lay that foundation in his identity. Position. He is king, He is prophet. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 1, he is priest. And so it begins to give this identity of Jesus that what makes him great is that he has taken all of the positions of Israel that weren't, they weren't held by any single person. They were held by multiple people. And now all of it culminates itself in Christ. And even beyond that, it's saying in this passage that, that this high priest has passed through the heavens. And so, what this author is doing is he's beginning to draw imagery. And by the way, I'm going to throw out a lot of texts of scripture that, if you want to study this week, I don't have time to dive into it all. I'm going to give you some passages that you can look up that relate to this text. But I think when this author is writing Hebrews chapter four, what he's thinking of in his mind is the calling of Aaron as high priest in Scripture, and I think most specifically uh, Leviticus chapter 16. I think the calling of Aaron is in Exodus 28. But in Leviticus chapter 16, this particular section of scripture is talking about the day of atonement. When you think about Israel's history, God tells Israel to create a temple. Or when it was first created, it was called a tabernacle. The word tabernacle literally means the dwelling place of God. If you wanted to meet with God, you went to this tabernacle. But here's the interesting thing about the tabernacle or the temple. It only ever had two rooms. Two rooms. Only two rooms in, in this tabernacle. We're going to take time in two weeks when we get to chapter 8, chapter 9 to talk in detail about this temple. But there were only ever two rooms in the temple. And what made it even further unique is that in these two rooms, the first room, the priests could enter. But only the priest could enter it. And in the second room, only the high priest could enter. And the high priest could only enter that room one time a year. And that's described for us in Leviticus chapter 16 when he would go into this room. And when he would go into this room, he would pass through a veil that separated the two rooms. And when he would walk in behind that veil, there was what's called the Ark of the Covenant or the Mercy Seat. And to Israel, it was a picture of the throne of God. The Shekinah glory or the presence of God was said to dwell here. One time a year on the Day of Atonement, according to Leviticus 16, the high priest would go in there and he would first make a sacrifice for his own sins by the sprinkling of blood. Then he would make a sacrifice for the people of Israel by the sprinkling of blood. But when he walked into this room, it was important that he carried with him incense that were smoking, and coals that were burning that created further smoke. And so when he, when he gathered at, at this mercy seat, what it was supposed to do was cloud. That smoke would cloud the glory of God because if the high priest walked in to the presence of God, it would strike him dead. It would be in comparison to this, like we, we have this building as a church where we gather together. It's like we all show up to worship, but we hang out in the parking lot. No one actually ever goes in the building. That's insane to think about, right? But what it was to Israel is the demonstration of the holiness of God, how pure it was. That they created this entire structure to to demonstrate to them this present holiness of such a glorious God that only one individual could enter into one time a year. He passed through the veil. And what it's saying to us in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 is it's now describing Jesus as passing through the heavens. And if you read, we'll see this in in weeks to come, that in Hebrews chapter 8 and chapter 9, that God calls his... Presence in heaven, the place where he rules and reigns from, the heavenly temple. And he says about the earthly temple that it's only a shadow of the heavenly presence of God ruling and reigning. And so when it's talking about Jesus going through the heavens, it's this description of passing through the veil as your high priest. And then it goes on from there in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Verse 15 is saying, Jesus relates to us. Jesus cares about you. What do you struggle with? What do you fight against? What do you give up? What do you sacrifice? Jesus relates to. I said in the beginning, Jesus is writing this to a group of people that are alienating themselves from their own friends and family. But he's saying in this verse, and Jesus experienced the same thing. You think about when Jesus was crucified, why he was crucified. He called himself the king of the Jews. In mockery, he was beat. And that phrase hung over his head. As he hung on the cross, they taunted him. And Jesus still said, Father, forgive. Jesus knows what it's like for the sake of truth and love to be alienated by their own people. By his own people. And so he's saying in this passage, not to take the easy road, but to understand that Jesus relates to you and Jesus takes this position for you that you can draw near to him. And then in verse 16 then, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help him in the time of need again. Leviticus chapter 16. Thinking about going through that veil, the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. And so it's saying this throne of grace of where Jesus finds himself is the place where you go to receive mercy. The throne of grace is the anti-type to the mercy seat and the heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus, in saying this about himself, then compares his position to that of uh, chapter 5 of Hebrews. It begins to describe for us The the title of high priest from a human perspective created in Old Testament law. It says, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men and things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. So they're taken from the tribe of Levi, appointed from the house of Aaron in order to make sacrifices of sin. Their uh, priest represents men before God or the people of Israel before God. And so in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of, of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people. And so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So it's saying to us in verse 3, this priest isn't perfect. He has to make sacrifices for his own sins before he can make sacrifice for other people. And he has to do it continually because no sacrifice is ever sufficient because people are always sinful, including the priests. And in this position, he doesn't take this to himself, but God gives it to him. When you consider the the position of high priest in Israel's day, it was a sacred position. God guarded this position. God maintained it in the tribe of of Levi, the house of Aaron. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you see different individuals in the course of of the Old Testament trying to take on the position of priest and, and God punishing them for it. This was sacred, holy, and it identified the holiness of God. In fact, uh, King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the first king in Israel, had the kingdom ripped away from him by God for acting as a priest. Korah, who led in the rebellion with some other individuals, tried to make themselves priests in number 16, and God judged them. King Uzziah was struck with leprosy for the same reason, Second Chronicles chapter 26. But God appointed Aaron to the sacredness of this. You know the very existence of this priesthood system of the Old Testament of the sacrifices gave evidence that man is estranged from God, but it 's an act of grace on god 's part in which he institutes the whole Levitical sacrificial system to give the people opportunity to come before God been a while. While it was gracious for God to institute Levitical law, what you see in the evidence of the Old Testament is that it was not sufficient or an end in itself, but merely a picture of what was to come as it culminated in Jesus, who becomes that Lamb and that high priest. And so, in verse 5 and verse 6 of the section of Scripture becomes the significant hinge point to understand what's being communicated in this chapter about the identity of Jesus and all that he would fulfill. In verse 5, it says this. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm going to say this, and hopefully I say it multiple times in this book. The New Testament is written by Jews. And when they're quoting the Old Testament, like they are in verse five and verse six, those capitalized sentences, they're saying to us that the picture of what Jesus fulfills in the New Testament has already been declared in the Old Testament. So, if you want to understand the significance of his position, his position as High Priest, you've got to look at these passages in the Old Testament in their context. It is so important when you see Old Testament passages quoted not to just dive past them, but but to stop for a minute, pause, look from where it's quoted, go back and understand that passage because it adds such beautiful imagery to what's being communicated. In chapter five, verse five and six, these are two of those verses that gives us that powerful punch to the identity of Jesus. In fact, I would tell you this about verse verse five. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This section of scripture is quoted multiple times in the New Testament. It's quoted when Jesus begins his ministry at his baptism. It's quoted twice in the book of Hebrews. Peter quotes it in his epistles. And this quote represents the identity of Jesus. If you remember how the story goes, John the Baptist is the forerunner to Jesus, declaring the kingdom that is to come, calling people to repent, telling them to make straight the paths because the king is coming. Jesus shows up and his declaration is, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus is coming to present this kingdom to bring you peace that you can know God for all of eternity. But when Jesus begins his ministry, he goes down to the Jordan River and he is baptized. And at his baptism, the Father speaks and the Spirit descends. And the Spirit, when it's descending, is anointing Jesus for his ministry. Oftentimes, when Psalm chapter 2 is quoted, it's pointing to the kingship of Jesus. Jesus is anointed for his ministry as king who has come to deliver his kingdom. In fact, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, where this comes from, is considered by Israel as a kingship psalm. In fact, they say it's a messianic kingship psalm. They would recite this before their kings in Israel's day, but they ultimately knew that a king could not fulfill all of Psalm chapter 2, an earthly king, that this had to be the Messiah who was going to be their ultimate king. And when Jesus is baptized, it is the father that declares this psalm over his son as the king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is anointed for ministry as that king. And he says, the father, you are my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. To help us recognize Psalm chapter 2 is Jesus now fulfilled in the flesh. But here's what's also interesting about Hebrews chapter 5 verses 5 and 6. As the author wants us to recognize that not only is Jesus anointed to be king, He's also anointed to be priest. And the reason we know that is because in verse 6, he then quotes Psalm 110. In quoting Psalm 110, this psalm's already been quoted in Hebrews. It was quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. It's talk about the, rule, the ruling nature of Jesus. But it says this, in verse 4 of Psalm 110 is where they're quoting this. It says, you are my priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What's interesting, if you study Psalm 110, I'll tell you this week, if you want to read it, it's a good psalm to read. This psalm culminates two identities of Jesus in one chapter of the Bible. You see within this chapter, the father talking about the son and him ruling and reigning. And then in verse four, it also talks about the son being after the order of Melchizedek, which is a priestly position. And in being after the order of Melchizedek, it says that he is ruling forever. Forever. And so it's talking about him being a king forever, ruling as priest forever, and this identity in Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Now, why in the world is he bringing up Melchizedek? If I told you not to look at the screen, how many of you can even spell that, right? Who is this Melchizedek? I gonna tell you, if you study in the Bible, there are only two, t- two chapters in the Old Testament that even talk about them. Psalm 110, and Genesis chapter 14. In the New Testament, it's Hebrews chapter 5 to 7. So if you want to study Melchizedek, by all means have fun this week. That's all you've got to look at, right? But this Melchizedek figure becomes important and especially to the Jews because Hebrews is written to the Jews. Here's the question you would have if you're a Jew. I can see how Jesus could be king. He comes from the tribe of Judah, which is of the lineage of David. The promise in Samuel chapter seven, verse 14 is David's kingdom will be forever and ever. So the Messiah obviously had to come from the kingdom of David in order for that king to reign forever and ever. But I can't make sense of him being a priest. Because in order to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. In order to be a high priest, you had to be from Aaron. How, if Jesus is from Judah, can he be a high priest? And the answer is, his priestly lineage doesn't come from Levi. Where does it come from? Elchizedek. Melchizedek becomes an important person in order to understand the position of Jesus. So when Jesus is talked about as being your high priest, it's from the position of Melchizedek. Now fortunately for us, in Hebrews chapter 7, it lays out the qualifications of what it takes to hold a priestly position after the order of Melchizedek. And I just showed you for a minute, this is what it looks like. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. And talking about Melchizedek, it says this. To whom also Abraham... A portion, a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the tr- uh, translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also the King of Salem, which is the King of Peace. Here's what it's saying in, in, in Hebrews chapter seven, verse two. Abraham was the first Jew. He had Judaism. It could have been like to the King of Melchizedek, that's good for you, but I'm a Jew. I'm gonna do my thing over here. But rather than do that, he looked at Melchizedek and he paid homage to Melchizedek. He revered the position of Melchizedek. He saw Melchizedek as the king of peace, the king of righteousness. And though being a Jew, he still in his Judaism went to Melchizedek to honor that position above his position as Jew. And then in verse three, it gives the qualification as as to what it takes to hold the position of Melchizedek. Look at this. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a perpetual priest. So what it's saying, in order to be after Melchizedek, the only one that could ever fulfill that position is God himself. Because everything else in this world has a beginning and an end. But what it's saying in this passage of scripture is that Jesus fulfills this position because in his life, he has no beginning and end. There is no mother and father. He is the origin of all things. And in that, he has neither beginning of days nor end of life. But he's made like the son of God. And therefore, he remains a priest perpetually. You know what happened with Levites of the house of Aaron as high priests? They died. And they always had to appoint another one. But Jesus now having this position of Melchizedek is not only saying it's impossible for anyone else to have this position, but he himself holds this position forever. And so we talk about the authority of Jesus and everything culminating in him. Jesus holds the position of, of Melchizedek and king as Psalm 110 tells us prophetically before Jesus even arrives because he holds a Melchizedek position as priest. And so then it goes on to describe for us. Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, talking about Jesus in the days of his flesh. He offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So let's begin to describe to us what the beauty of seeing him as high priest and what he endured for you. Prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He's talking to the father who Brings him to life from the death because of his piety. This idea of piety is the word for reverence, or if I said it in another way, humility. Um, it's, it's as if to say in our lives, who sits on your throne? Like when you wake up tomorrow, tomorrow morning, what's the basis for the decisions that you make? Is it because you're Lord of your life or because God is? Um, humility is the language of God if you want to draw near to God the apostle Paul says this in Romans 12 I beg you brothers by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your reasonable act of service or worship God didn't create you for your glory God created you for his glory but here's the great gain. In living for God's glory, you experience tremendous joy because the purpose for which you were created is only found in Him. God knows the reason for your design better than you do. But there becomes a place in trust in all of our lives where we've got to submit ourselves and take ourselves off the throne and trust in God that He knows better. And in that, there is great joy. And saying with Jesus that he practiced humility or demonstrated humility in the flesh to the point that he's in tears crying out on your behalf as high priest. And I think in this story what they have pictured is is communion, the Last Supper. I think the Last Supper is kind of interesting. I might have a different take on it than different people, but... When the Last Supper was uh, partake, uh, partook of with his disciples in the upper room, there, there were four cups that were celebrated in the Passover celebration. And the last cup, I don't think Jesus partook of the last cup, and I'll tell you why. And the last cup, I think Jesus blessed it, Jesus pronounced it, but Jesus didn't partake of it because the last cup is a representation of the second coming of Christ. That's, the, that's what it means. And Jesus tells his disciples uh, as they're breaking bread over this last cup that I'll drink it new with you in the kingdom. Jesus is using the picture of communion to remind us that he is returning. But here's something else that's interesting with the cups. In one of the cups, there's placed, there placed bitter herbs in them. And bitter herbs are a representation of sin during the Passover celebration. And tradition goes that when Passover was celebrated, that when they would drink the cup, they had to drink it deep before they can allow it to pass. So as this cup goes around, each individual would take the cup. They were to drink it deep. As they drank it deep, they were allowed to pass the cup to the person beside of them. Until it got to the last person who was to take the last drink. And the last drink, there were the bitter herbs, which was the representation of the sin. And whoever got the last cup had to drink it deep before they could let the cup pass. And they were to drink of the sin, the bitter herbs. And Jesus in the Garden of Eden, as he's crying out in Luke chapter 22, verse 42, he says to the Father, God, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. When Jesus is praying that prayer, he's not saying to the Father, look God, I don't want to go to the cross. Some people read that passage and think that's what Jesus is saying. Look, Jesus understood his whole life was about his death. In fact, in Hebrews 13, it tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew his life was about his death. He's not praying, don't let this cross happen. Well, Jesus is praying as he thinks about his life that's about to be offered as communion, as the sacrifice for sin. He's asking for the the strength to take the last drink of this cup so he can let this cup pass. God, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. This prayer, this crying is for you. The strength he's begging for in taking on sin, it's for you. And so it's saying this about verse 7 in Jesus and then goes on verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from, from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. So it's contrasting this thought. Although he was a son, meaning he's God, he knows everything, he also learned obedience. Now it's not saying he learned obedience like God didn't know because he's God, he knows But he's actually learning obedience because he's become flesh. And so what he's learning is what he knows experientially now. It's being played out. And so it goes on from there in in, in describing this uh, in learning obedience as being made perfect or, or being made complete. Jesus in His life has now demonstrated Himself as that perfect or complete sacrifice for you, because He has walked and learned obedience as that sufficient sacrifice of your life, and it calls us. And then in the this passage, to obey. Now I want us to know, it's not telling you to obey for salvation. It's not saying, now go obey God so that you can experience salvation. But rather it's saying, it's saying obey God because he has brought you salvation. So the call in this passage is for trusting in God. It's looking at this high priest and what he sacrificed in you. And now obeying what he's communicated to you. And that he has given his life and called you to trust in him. Which brings me to this. Let me make some application for us. I'm gonna tie all this in for us from the beginning of chapter five, actually the end of chapter four, and then into the end of chapter five. It says this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, here's what it tells you to do. Let us hold fast our confession. Out of everything in life that can rock you, this foundation the identity in Jesus and where you are in him, hold to this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And then it tells you this again. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Come boldly to this throne of grace, it says. Now just consider the, the description it gives for our approach to Jesus. The throne of grace. This is an incredible phrase for us to think about in terms of this king. Religious mentality, you never know if you've ever done enough. But because of his grace, it's calling you in this passage to come boldly before this king. If I just, maybe in a sobering question, ask you for a moment, um, what is God obligated to give you? Or what does God owe you? I I know what God has given you, but I don't know that God has to give you anything. In fact, in, in 1 John chapter 4, it tells us that God is love, and and love is about giving itself away. In fact, love is about the sacrifice of self to the benefit of another. And so God is love, and by his nature, he gives himself away to the benefit of others, even, even to the expense of you being in sin, God loves you where you are. And in this passage, it's referring to this as a throne of grace. And when you, when you study thrones in Scripture as it relates to God, the Bible really only gives us two thrones. It either gives us a throne of judgment or a throne of grace. And in this passage, it's calling you to this throne of grace. And it tells us to let us go boldly to this throne of grace, which shows us the sufficiency of who Jesus is. So in verse 14, don't give up your confession. Why? Because Jesus was victorious, and you can come boldly to him at any time. Not only does it show you the sufficiency of Jesus, but it also shows you the freedom we have in Christ. Now you think Old Testament, New Testament here. Old Testament, you had a high priest. When you screw up, when you sin, it's going to cost you, because you've got to go buy a lamb. Right, And you take that lamb to the temple and you make a sacrifice. You're like, here I am. I sinned. I got to make this sacrifice. And in some cases, it's total burnt offering. So none of that lamb is going to be used for your family. It's, it's all of it consumed because of your sin. And now you think about all of this process. You sin. You're alienating your relationship with God. You got to find a mediator. You, you, you approach that mediator. You go through this whole process. And then five minutes later, you're walking about the temple and before you know it, someone does something stupid and you say something stupid back about it. You're like, man, I got to go buy another lamb and I ain't got time for this, right? And you got to take your lamb and go back to the temple and make another sacrifice. How inefficient that is with your time. And this is what it's saying in the freedom of Christ. Come boldly. No doubt the temple shows the holiness of God. God. But no amount of religious work could satisfy. Because the human heart goes wayward so fast. But it says in this passage come boldly, this is an impossibility. Religiously, I think, to receive this type of grace. And in religion, you're just constantly performing, never knowing if it's enough. But here in this passage, it talks about we receive mercy because of this throne of grace. And when you think about grace in the Bible, I would tell you, if you want to look up a few verses, Romans eleven six, it tells us, if works are added to it, grace is no longer grace. Or Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace is totally unmerited faith favor from God. It has nothing to do with what you do. It has to do with everything he has done for you. And so it tells us to come boldly uh, to this throne of grace. What makes Christianity different than every other religion in this world is this grace that allows us to find forgiveness in Christ. Because you think even in dating the the beginning of human history, when Adam and Eve sinned, they have no idea how God's going to respond to it. But in their religion, they run away from God. They run away from God, they hide from God, they clothe themselves, uh, they pretend like God's not around, they try to perform these religious works to, to appease God, but it's God who pursues them and extends to them grace. It's God who loves them where they are and God who promises them a sacrifice and God who gives us all the opportunity to come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace, not because of what you do or have done, but because of what he's done for you. Let us go boldly to the throne of grace. Shows us positionally in him. When we talk about coming boldly to this throne, I want us to know this is every believer. Every believer in Christ. In the Old Testament, it was the high priest. In in the New Testament, it's every believer that has this opportunity. Religiously, we tend to develop spiritual elitism that some of us are more spiritual than others, right? Right? Sometimes we might even elevate pastoral position, like there's something more special about when I pray than you pray. And I, I just want you to know this morning, that's garbage. And G- what Jesus did for you was enough for you to come before him at any time, in any moment, boldly pursuing him. In fact, when Peter thinks about this, he says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, talking about everyone. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. So it's God pursuing you in sin, God pursuing you in darkness, and God bringing you in his light. And the title he gives you, look at this, it matches the identity of Jesus, royal priesthood, King Melchizedek. Since you belong to the king, you have royalty in the king and you have access to the king just like the priests. It's not this spiritual elitism. It's not even gender-based. It's like in, in the Old Testament, it was only from one tribe. It was only from the house of Aaron and it was only dudes. In the New Testament, it doesn't matter. All of you, all of us, come boldly to this throne of grace. And and here's what happens because of it. It gives us a a beautiful position, guys. That now just as Jesus calls you to experience him relationally at any moment, at any time, Sabbath rest, you also represent the people of this world to this king, as priest. You become a priest. Or I guess a priestess or something. I don't know. but, But you're you have this position before God to represent the world. And here's how Hebrews ends, Hebrews chapter five. He says, concerning him, we have much to say And it's hard to explain, talking about Jesus and Melchizedek, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So what it's saying is because of what Jesus has done you can approach God at any time and you understand how you can represent God to this world in that position how beautiful it is but in this case he's saying and people aren't living it out it's become ineffective in fact he compares it to, to taking, partaking of milk rather than meat it's sort of I don't know if I should put this picture in your mind, but it's sort of like this. It's, it's like when a mother feeds their one-year-old, completely natural, supposed to happen in life. But man, if you're still doing that at 15, dude, that looks way weird, way weird. Do not do that, right? It is time to have a steak, Buster. It's not going to cut it with just meat uh, milk anymore. You need some meat in that diet. You are incredibly insufficient, right? And it's saying that about you. Look, in the Old Testament, here's the priest, and they elevated him in such a wonderful position. I know the New Testament has has positions of eldership and pastor. I I know that. And and I I don't want to make light of that. But I I just want us to understand how powerful of a position you have in Christ and the way you live it out in this world. Because not only can you approach Jesus at any time with any need, you can powerfully live for it in this world to the point that you see change. And, And let me just tell you how that practically works. In your life, you will never come to Jesus unless you see your need for Jesus. i can read you everything that Jesus did for you and crying out for you on the cross for your sins. But until you recognize that you are sinful, alienated from God, you will never embrace that. You need Jesus. If there were any other way, Jesus would not have done what he has done for you. And so you need Jesus, but here's the powerful thing. In God pursuing you in his grace, despite your sin, that grace transforms your life. Jesus is honest with you. He's truthful. You need him. You need him. You cannot live, especially for eternity, without him. You need him. And even in being truthful, he loves you deeper than anyone ever loved you. I think one of the most beautiful stories for me in seeing that played out is Jesus coming to the woman at the well. Her life's a mess. Jews didn't talk to Samaritans, especially her. And she was alienated by Samaritans. Like not only did Jews not talk to Samaritans, but but Samaritans aren't even talking to this woman. And Jesus meets her and Jesus is truthful with her and Jesus is honest with her. But Jesus still loved her at a depth in her life that she had never been loved. And that grace transformed her look, guys, when you talk about being a priest in this world, this is what I want you to understand. This is the way the world operates. When the world sees something ugly happening that it does not like, they use it as an excuse to be a rear-end in return. Like, you were an idiot, and now you justify my behavior to act like a rear-end back to you. I'm completely justified because look what they did. And that's the way the world works. But not Jesus. Jesus is truthful, but he still offers a place of redemption. He still offers a place of grace. Man, I hate watching it in the news today. Like, someone does something that's foolish and dumb, then everyone develops their opinions, and everyone just blasts everyone else constantly. I think there's an important place to share truth. Man, not with such venom towards someone else. Everyone's created in the image of God, and no one's gonna get anywhere good by tearing each other down. I think in our society, in recent decades, where have we best seen that? Where have we best seen someone just living with a statement of truth in the midst of evil and demonstrating the beauty of Christ, by example? For me, if I just thought of a figure historically, every reason in the world to fire hate with hate, But you know what won the day? Grace. You know what changes hearts? Grace. You know the best person to speak that grace is the one who's been wronged. That is power over your enemies. The same thing's true with Jesus. I was an enemy of Christ. But you know what changed me? It's grace. I think of this week, um, a friend messaged me, one of my, I guess heroes, I should say in Christianity passed away. When I was a young guy, I was a punk. I'd like to punch you and take your money before I, something like that. I don't know. So, something, something violent and mean before, before I did anything gracious. And there was this older man that was in our neighborhood or in our area where I lived in. I mean, he was like, 50, 60 years older than me and I hung out with a crowd that were just a bunch of punks together doing punk things all the time and this guy, when he would see us in the streets would just come up to us and he would always have this weird laugh he'd, and sometimes he wore suspenders he'd be like, heh, heh like this and, he, and then this old guy would just come up and we would look at him just like it is weird when you're young just this older guy coming up with just with this wool hair and he would be like I bet you guys think you're tough, don't you? Well, if you're real tough you'd follow Jesus and we're like, well, <laughs> who is this guy, you know? And here we are just being these punks and this guy would just come up into our group and just start talking about Jesus and he would call us out but do you know in my life I never had a man do that and here he was truthful but he still loved us and that group of kids that I was a part of we ran wild because we didn't have the figures around us to give us healthy ways of thinking but you know he did I mean it was easy to do just walk by him right? Look your nose down at them. They're lower than you. Or think about what Jesus has done, how his grace transforms your heart. Grace has power to change. And can I tell you, it's not until you come to the throne of grace that you'll begin to live that grace in your life. That's so what Martin Luther said in his Ebenezer Baptist Church 1968, everyone, everyone, guys, can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Can I tell you the only place that really comes is when you find your identity in Christ because it's only in that love that it would lead you to love others in such a way. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.